Building in Perth, everything you wish you knew in five informative episodes. Available on YouTube, Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And then there was two. We only have one more episode after this one and our Building in Perth journey will draw to a close. I really hope that you have enjoyed everything so far. Uh, What we're going to be diving into today is a little bit about promotions and discounts and then we're going to be talking about uh, the preliminary works contract or some builders call it a PPA which is preparation of plans agreement I believe as well. So that's kind of like the paperwork that you would go through with someone like myself, a building consultant that kind of outlines all of the inclusions uh, in the home in conjunction with what we would call your uh, sales sketch. And then after that, we're going to get into the pre-start side of things, which is kind of where you make all of your selections for colors and finishes in the home. And I'm gonna go into that in a little bit of depth. We don't have any special guests today, so you are gonna have to deal with my voice the entire time, but it might make it a little bit of a quicker episode. So. First and foremost, uh, promotions. So obviously, uh, builders have always got some sort of marketing messages out there to basically get people to pick up the phone. And it might be 50 grand's worth of this, 80 grand's worth of that, or you're getting free this or free that or triple this, or there's got to be something to get you engaged to pick up the phone. Now, like I've said previously in the other episodes, just remember that nothing is ever free and it's all just marketing noise. Okay, so um, words like free, extra, inclusion, bonus, they're all irrelevant. I have people come to me all the time and go, what are your inclusions or what are your inclusions? It's a really common question and I totally understand where people are coming from when they're saying that because that's the messaging that they always see uh, from the builders on on a retail level. Now, what really matters at the end of the day is what you are actually getting for that final figure. What words we use to describe it are completely irrelevant. We can call it bonus, we can call it inclusions, we can call everything a bonus uh, at the end of the day. But what matters is the list of things in this preliminary works contract we're gonna go through next and what that price is at the bottom and does everything in that contract and that plan represent what you want and is that true value to you? So again, nothing is ever free. The sequel, we'll call it as uh, I've said in the book. So. I gave this another page just to really, really, uh, you know, drum this one in um, because if something seems too, uh, too good to be true, uh, it probably is, right? So it's usually just some sort of uh, shuffle, uh, sorry, reshuffle uh, or smoke and mirrors uh, in terms of the way a builder's putting their pricing together and displaying what they're offering you more than anything else. At the end of the day, most of the builder's costs are all going to be pretty similar. They're all going to be using trades that charge reasonably similar rates. Some are gonna be a little bit more than others and things like that, but there aren't any builders out there, make no mistake, that can offer massive amounts of money to you for free or give you something that is so significantly better than another one. It's just not the way it works. And the builder's margins, truth be told, they're simply not high enough uh, for any of those sort of significant sort of giveaways. So just don't be too bamboozled by all of the big numbers and and all of that sort of thing, okay? Um, One of the really good things I guess uh, you can do, and I'm just sort of reading from my uh, book here, is kind of like ask your builder to justify why a promotion is worth so much. Get them to itemize it and, and, and show you exactly where all of this value is. And if you really, really want to ruffle some feathers and annoy them, and this is one of my personal favorite ones, so, This is really good for when builders are putting a really big price tag 
uh, on some sort of promotion or piece of value add as such. And that is ask them to credit it out. So if you ask them to credit it out, you're not gonna get that full value back. You'll actually find out what it's really worth to them. Okay, so again, I'm just gonna repeat that. With a promotion, ask the builder to credit it out because then you're gonna find out what it is really worth. You're not gonna have this sort of massive figure uh, hovering over a promotion anymore, giving you some sort of false sense of value. Uh, I think that's a really uh, important one to, to try and learn. Um, so yeah, take that one on board and make sure you do ask. Now, obviously through the negotiation of purchasing both land and house, the word discount is something that does come up all the time, okay? So kind of like with the promotions, if builders are able to offer you a really, really significant discount when it comes to signing paperwork, there's kind of like a couple of little red flags there to a degree, okay? So th the first one is, okay, so knowing that all of the builder's costs and everything are all pretty similar to from what I was saying just before, how can someone give me such a large discount versus someone else not being able to do it? Now, this could be for a number of reasons. It could be that in fact, all of the products, so remember those little ingredients that I went through in the previous episode, maybe all of those are actually relatively cheap and that's actually giving the, the builder more margin to discount to win work and kind of give you perceived value, right? Maybe they're using cheaper trades as well, right? And that gives them that little bit of a buffer to offer that discount. There's always going to be a reason, which is the crux of I guess what I'm trying to explain here. So yeah, you might have a little bit of a win and there's a little bit of negotiation that goes on, but just be very wary of anything too significant. And last of all, the other reason why you might get one is that a builder is really, really not busy. So they might be what we call, in the industry anyway, we call it buying the work, right? So uh, just discounting until they win it, basically to keep their wheels turning as a building company. And this is something that, uh, you see all the time. Now, the easiest way to kind of try and maybe figure out as to whether that might be happening is have a look at some of the reports showing what builders are selling what volume. Um, and you tend to see this with builders that are selling a little bit less than than others. They're kind of, you know, really scrambling uh, for work. And that's not really, uh, that's not good for you. You might think, oh, that's great. It's a good deal for me. But um, what that often is relative to is gonna be that builder's financial position. And what that means for you long-term is, are they even gonna be there later on for the warranties and things like that? So as you can see, all of these kind of things all intertwine. And I hope that's sort of coming together for you a little bit now uh, after going through the, the previous episodes. So the next thing I'm just gonna say, and this had its own page in the book with really, really big letters is buy the home, not the deal. Recognize the difference between best deal and cheapest deal. They are two very, very different things, okay? So best deal, cheapest deal, different. So just make sure that you really do understand the difference between those two. So let's dive into the preliminary works contract. So I guess one of the really important things is the trust with your building consultant. So I identified this, yeah, I think it was in the, the first episode, the trust there with your building consultant is really, really important because they are the ones that put together this document that says what is going into your home and how much it's going to cost, okay? So you wanna be sure that you've had really, really clear conversations, communications, 
have everything in writing by email, take pictures in the display home if you need to, just to clarify that, yes, I think I'm getting this cabinet work or that cabinet work. I, in fact, I would really encourage you to take a lot of photos and then just clarify all of that by email. It really holds uh, a builder accountable for what you think you're getting, okay? So if you've got that all in writing with pictures and everything going, I understand I'm getting this, this, and this, then you have a, an absolute fallback position. Now, most builders are gonna be pretty good with things and, and transparent, of course, but I guess just for your own peace of mind, I think that's a, a good exercise to go through. And it's also good just to have on record just pictures of the things that are going into your home. So when you're making uh, furniture decisions and, and that sort of thing, it's kind of like handy just to have uh, on file. Okay, so I guess with the preliminary works contract, it's a really big list of things that are going into the home. And generally speaking, the way that this is laid out, the builder will have their standard specifications. So kind of like that recipe that I talked about in the previous episode, they're gonna have their specification sheet. Then their preliminary work contract is going to basically cover off pretty much what those things are and then variations to that as determined by you. So that might be some changes that you made. You might've added some doors or you might've modified some cabinetry and those things will have uh, the, the uh, associated costs attributed to them, okay? So just be vigilant when reading through that preliminary works contract, like really, really go through it with a fine tooth comb. Again, cover everything off by email, try and avoid the phone call and SMS for that reason. Generally, the items in the preliminary works contract are going to be numbered, so it's easy to reference uh, the things you wanna talk about. And also make sure that is as itemized as you can kind of get it. Um, I mean, really breaking it down into a granular fashion for I'd say 100% of builders is gonna be really, really hard, but certainly if you're you know just adding some uh, cabinet work or some drawers, or you might've, I don't know, added a sliding door and then maybe a double basin in the ensuite, all of those things should be really, really easy to itemize separately. Don't just settle for a big figure at the end with a list of items. Okay, so around this time, um, well, actually exactly this time, you would be paying a deposit. If you're doing it in what I would deem as the right order anyway, there are some builders out there that are definitely heavy handed with requesting deposits right on the front foot before you've even done any paperwork. Be very, very wary of that. Um, there's no reason that you should be paying a deposit until you are 100% happy with your preliminary works contract and your plan. Make the builders do the work before you pay any amount of money. Um, the only caveat to that may be in some cases, if you're doing a complete custom design, some builders probably will ask for some sort of financial commitment upfront to deliver that. You should still be able to get a, I guess, a broad overview of what that design might look like from your building consultant prior to making any financial commitment, but certainly for any more detailed drawings depending on the building company and to a large degree, the skill set of the building consultant, um, they may ask for a deposit in order to get a designer or a, or a drafty to do it. Some building consultants are gonna be capable of doing those custom designs themselves before getting any sort of uh, deposit from you. Turnkey is something that comes up a lot when we're talking about preliminary works contracts and just contracts in general. So just to cover off what turnkey is, it means a lot of th different things to different people, okay? So I know that when we spoke to uh, Ivan about finance earlier, his, uh, uh, I guess, um, understanding of turnkey was to do with uh, finance, right? So 
in terms of what he was discussing with Keystart, it was having blinds and a driveway crossover, and he was referring to that as turnkey. What an investor might refer to as turnkey is everything is done, painting on the walls, rear landscaping, antenna, it's ready for people to move in and occupy. So um, really do clarify with your consultant what that term means, if it's going to be applicable to your build. It can even be as simple as, you know, having things like the floors in the home, but just understand that that term means different things to, to different people. Now, to follow on from turnkey, I understand that it is nice and kind of romantic to just have everything in your building contract and it's all going to be done at the end. Financially speaking, that's not necessarily the best way for you to do it. In fact, if you're in a position where you can afford to do some of the finishing trades, so things like window furnishings, paint, uh, rear landscaping, um, maybe even floors, then just know that if you can afford to do those things yourself and you're in a, I guess, a cash position or you know, if you've got a credit card or whatever later on um, to be able to do that, then you're probably going to pay less in the long term simply for the fact that, um, and I'm sure that this isn't ruffling any feathers with other builders that might be listening, but anything that goes through a building contract is going to have the builder's margin on top of it, right? We're going to make money on it as a builder because we have to coordinate the installation of that item. We have to warrant it. Uh, it's under our insurance during the build, right? So anything that goes through the build, we will make money on. So you are going to save a pretty reasonable amount of money if you can do some of the things later on yourself. So just keep that in mind. With the preliminary works contract, beware of provisional sums, okay? Especially if you're building in what we call a Greenfields estate. So that's one of the, you know, the nice big large developments with flat sandy blocks, okay? Now, provisional sums you can find throughout a contract um, for all sorts of things. It might be things like flooring, but the most common one would definitely be site works. Now, especially with what I would say, again, those Greenfield sites, so brand new big land developments, realistically there isn't a reason why those site works should be provisional it's very very clear what is required on those sites up front right so i mean i've got logins to engineer portals that will show me soil classes and everything like that they're flat they're sandy they're basically ready to build on there's no reason for a provisional sum or a ps to be next to your site works sometimes builders will keep that ps low the upfront in the contract that actually gives them a almost a perceived lower value, right? But just remember that those, anything that says PS is kind of saying, you know, like, I don't know what the total is going to be, but you could charge me more later. It's kind of like writing a blank check if you like. So just be very, very weary of those. Where you do see them uh, come in a lot more and it makes sense for this is if it's in if the block that you purchase is in a infill area so hypothetically let's say uh, it's a block in Morley and they bowled over a old home and they've cut a block down the middle and you're you've bought one of the blocks on the left hand side right now the reason the provisional sums are applicable there is that there's a lot of variable on sites like those so we need to take into account things like the level of the house next door, the condition of the fence that is forms the boundary. Are you building onto the boundary? Um, same goes for the rear. There's just a lot of different things involved and a lot of moving parts. Your builder should still be able to give you a pretty good estimate uh, based on the uh, site survey and soil samples, but that would generally come after the preliminary works contract. 
if you do want to make sure that you're not sort of at any risk with provisional sums at this point, I guess a good piece of advice would be if you're going to purchase a block and you're pretty set on it and your builder's given you a pretty good indication that, yeah, it looks pretty straightforward, pay for the site works, sorry, not, sorry, not the site works, the site survey and geotechnical report uh, upfront because once you've got those, the builder can actually give you accurate costings, right? And so that way you're somewhat protected from uh, any fluctuation in that pricing at a later stage. So I'm just gonna touch on Shire and developer requirements. Now, this is something your building consultant should identify upfront even before you get to the preliminary works contract stage. It's something that that should always be in the back of a building consultant's mind when they're first identifying what you want out of the house design, where you wanna build it. And we're looking at different areas and things because a lot of these types of requirements do have uh, cost implications, okay? So uh, there's things like, you've probably heard the term BAL before or BAL, so bushfire attack level, kind of if you're within uh, a certain range of some bushland, if you like, or scrub, sometimes it even pops up for median strips and silly, silly things like that. Uh, you might have to put extra stuff into your home to make it compliant. And that is uh, not negotiable. It is a mandatory uh, type thing. You've got the same situation with if you're building within proximity to the coast, right? So you're obviously near salty air. Things in the home need to be upgraded to make sure the salty air doesn't corrode it. Uh, noise is another one. If you're right near a major traffic or rail artery, uh, you might need to upgrade the home for noise or underneath an airport, a really good example of that is the Kalia estate down in Treaty. Every house in that estate does require upgraded glass because of the, uh, I guess they're light planes flying overhead, right? So all of these types of things are, it, it is information that's available upfront to your building consultant. Um, further to, I guess, those more technical ones, it can even just be simple things like design guidelines. So the land developer in the area says, you know, you've got to have a certain, picture of roof or certain features on the front of your home or certain materials and things like that. All of that information is available up front. Just make sure your building consultant is across it because it shouldn't be something that is missed in a preliminary works contract. Uh, and then it's something you're hit with later on at a pre-start stage or something like that. So why can't I build my house how I want to build it? So I actually get this quite often and look, it's it's something that people don't necessarily understand. They don't build homes every day, but if you buy a piece of land, you just can't build whatever you like on it, right? There are what we call R codes that dictate what we actually build in terms of size, how it's positioned on the block. And there's other documents as well, more often than not with the newer estates called local development plans and detailed area plans that are kind of like a variation to these R codes. Now, it does get a little bit complex and look, it's not necessarily for you as a client to understand. Uh, your building consultant should be able to take you through it as much detail as you want. But what I usually tell my clients as an example is you focus on, let's, getting, let's get the layout of the house right. And you focus on the fluffy uh, colors and things like that. I'll worry about where the house has to sit, how far off this boundary it has to sit and how big it can be and everything like that. That's very much my job. but more than happy to explain it to people if they do want to know more. Okay, so after the preliminary works contract stage, the job is kind of in, well, when I say kind of, it is in what we call a pre-construction phase, okay? So that's where we'd carry out drafting, so the complete working drawings for the home. So that's like the, the complex drawings with all the little measurements on it, and then you get 
elevations of the side of the house and sections of your bathrooms and everything like that. And that takes time. So what um, you usually find as a buyer is, and I'm sure this is the same with uh, all building companies, is that it's all like really exciting, everything's happening. You find your block of land and you're doing your design with your building consultant, you sign up, you pay a deposit, and then it kind of seems like radio silence a little bit. So it's not that uh, we're not doing anything, it's just that the drafting uh, and estimating stage to do all of the working drawings and your what we call your lump sum building contract it just takes time. You know, there's shire submissions that need to happen. There's energy certifications that need to happen. There are so many different tasks uh, that are being done by a whole team of different people uh, in the background during during that phase. So my advice to people is after you do sign off on your preliminary work contract, your job is to get thinking about colours straight away and really make sure that you're well prepared for the pre-start meeting, which is where you select your colours, which is essentially what I'm going to go through right now. So I think that this is one of the most fun parts of building. I'm a little bit airy-fairy and kind of design-oriented, if you like. I do actually help a lot of my clients with their selections because I kind of feel that uh, delivering the colours as well as the the layout of the home, they kind of go hand-in-hand hand to a, a, a bit of a degree anyway. Um, so I do like to get involved with it uh, a, a little bit along the way anyway. Not Not always, but sometimes. So anyway, it's the fun part. So best advice here is download uh, Pinterest, download House, or log in on the web or whatever and look for inspiration. Now, on a platform like House, I, I really, really recommend that one. That's H-O-U-Z-Z. -Z. It's a great um, web application, but especially if you've got an iPad, it's very, very good. Uh, now, most of the stuff on there is high-end European, American architects and interior designers, the vast majority of it. Now, it is a very, very good place to get inspiration for color palettes and to see design trends and things like that from the really top end of town. And you can try and adapt that to what you're trying to do with your colors, right? So um, it's really important you're prepared for this meeting. The pre-start is not generally anyway. And look, this again depends on the builder, but I wouldn't call it an interior design consultation, right? Simply for the fact that there's a pretty significant time constraint around going through that process, right? So it's really going through and just finalizing uh, all of the selections you've made. They'll provide you with a little bit of feedback and go, look, oh, I don't know about that one. Maybe you should use this instead. But go through it in a lot of detail before you get to that meeting. It should really be exactly that, a meeting just to finalize the decisions that you have already made. So all builders are gonna have a selection center that you can go into at any time and basically, when I, when I say any time, it's not 24 hours <laughs> 24 hours a day, but uh, certainly during the day and sometimes they'll have them open at night as well. So just open, ask your um, building consultant, but go in there, start pulling out colors, get some ideas together based on those things that you've put, um, the scrapbookings type things you've done with Pinterest uh, and House and Instagram's another good resource um, as well. Um, now, at this pre-start stage, it's more than just selecting colors, okay? And what I wanted to cover off here is a very, very important one to understand because you can, I wouldn't say save yourself money, but just be aware of costs before you get to this stage. So personally, what I do with my clients is when I go through the whole house, I also generally go through the full selection room and to a degree, a little bit of the pre-start process in terms of costing every little thing up front. So that goes for 
all of the extra little PowerPoints and things, all these subtle little changes that they're not very big costs, but they do add up to a little bit, right? Now, some building consultants anyway, up front, are gonna try and keep that preliminary works contract as lean as possible because they're trying to give you that perceived value to get pen to paper. That's kind of the way it works. It's a very sales oriented process, right? Now, personally, I think the best way of approaching it is almost, I guess, to use a sales term, is a top-down approach, which is where you get the design together, but then you go through everything in finite detail, right? So every little PowerPoint, do you want to change this tap? Do you want to upgrade this basin? What do you want to do with, I don't know, the, the handles on the kitchen cabinet work as an example? And you try and go through that as much as you can up front with your building consultant and get all of those costs. You don't have to put them all into your preliminary works contract, right? You could still pay for those at the conclusion of your build as part of your pre-start build, but at least you have an overall cost before you get to that pre-start stage. What you really don't want is to get to that pre-start stage and then all of a sudden uh, the pre-starter is telling you, oh, look, that's not included, that's an upgrade, that's an upgrade, that's an upgrade. And all of a sudden you're walking out with a bill for a few thousand dollars uh, and kind of feeling a little bit deflated about the process as well. It should really be one of the most exciting parts. And I think identifying what those pre-start costs might be upfront at a preliminary works contract stage is going to kind of help you um, through that pre-start process and make sure it is exciting and fun and you're not feeling deflated at the end because you're getting lumped with a big bill. Now, truth be told, I do do that with most of my clients because I think it's a nice transparent way of doing it. Now, the time between signing off on your preliminary works, preliminary works contract and the time you have pre-start, it's probably gonna be two to three months as a rough guesstimate, okay? Um, maybe even a little bit longer with some builders, it really depends. Now, no doubt during that time, you're gonna sit there with your plan, you'll show it to friends and everything like that, and you're gonna change your mind on some things along the way. And you probably will come out of pre-start with a small bill maybe, but at least we've limited that by doing a lot of the pricing work upfront and it should be more a case of just selecting the colors. Actually, one other important thing to kind of ask your sales consultant on the front foot um, is do the pre-start consultants get paid a commission? So I know that some builders do have commission-based, uh, well not commission-based, but consultant pre-start consultants that get commission. So it's kind of their job to upsell you at that pre-start stage. Now, look, in my opinion, you've gone through the sales process with someone like myself. That pre-start stage, it shouldn't be a second sell. You're there to go through the fun bit and select the colors like I just covered off. So do ask that question because uh, yeah, a second sell in the process I don't think is very fair to be honest. Don't do your pre-start from a book, okay? Or online on a screen. So it's okay to get some very rough ideas, but the way that colors work, they all interact with each other and bounce off each other and, and everything like that, right? So um, it's really important to do all of your colors in person in a room and wherever possible, try and do that under some sort of natural daylight if you can. Uh, so I know as an example in our selection room, we've got a really big skylight in there over one of the benches and I always do color layouts in that spot. Um, the only reason I say that is if you do it underneath uh, lights that are of different color temperatures, it, it can affect how we perceive color. Uh, and then when you move into the home and you see under natural daylight, it might look different. 
One of the other things I just want to touch on here as well, and I get asked this all the time, is oh, what paint color should I use? And certainly when I was uh, working in display homes, I used to have people come through all the time and say, oh, look, what color is this on the walls? I absolutely love this color. Now, there is a very, very good reason why that color in that display home is not necessarily the color that you want for your house. And that really just comes down to the way that we perceive color, okay? So if you can, painting should be done absolute last after floors, cabinet work and everything like that. Ideally, after you move in, I know it's nice to have everything done when you get the keys, but having the flexibility to make that decision on your paint color when you are standing in the house and you can try a couple of different color pots on the walls will make a very, very big difference. I'm not sure if you can see, well, I guess you can see behind me at the moment in my living room, right? It's just a white wall. I probably had about 15 different colored whites. And I learned this technique from a friend of mine who's an interior designer for a very, a very, very good uh, architectural firm. And she said, look, get the A3 swatches that you can get from, I think you get them from Dulux, they're about a dollar each, you can buy them online. Stick them all up on the wall with masking tape, switch all the lights off, make sure you're doing it during under, the, I guess, the, the natural daylight and the color will jump out jump out at you pretty quickly and, and it was true. Um, I basically looked across and under artificial light, they all look pretty much the same under natural light, they look different. Uh, obviously all the, the floor color and everything was bouncing off um, onto the swatches as was cabinet work and things like that. So just keep that in mind. All of the different materials and surfaces in the home have a relationship with each other and your eyes essentially. Electrical and technology design. So we did speak to Jamie in the last episode, so I'm not gonna sort of tuck into the intelligent home side of it too much because they're sort of very good at what they do, taking people through how to mount TVs on walls and everything. One thing I will touch on though is electrical design. Um, and in my little uh, first steps video guide that I have um, for download, uh, it goes into this in a bit more detail. Now I was involved with electrical design at a, at a fairly high level for a very long time. And it is something that people overlook. People get caught up on cabinet colors and what they're gonna choose for the floor and everything. Cause that's kind of the exciting fluffy stuff and the practicality side of things with stuff like PowerPoints and location of light switches takes a little bit of a backseat and may not get enough thought. So when you do get your working drawings from your builder, sit down with the electrical plan, red pen, and really go through that and think about exact locations of PowerPoints, heights of PowerPoints, quantity of PowerPoints. Think about what appliances you're going to have out on your kitchen bench, even little things like, as an example, I've got this in my own home and it's, and it's awesome. And it's just like something you just probably wouldn't think of. And that's having a PowerPoint inside your bathroom cabinet. So my electric shavers, toothbrush, et cetera, they're all on charge underneath the bench, top of the bench top completely clean. Um, and in the kitchen, I've got, um, I have actually positioned some power underneath my uh, stone bench tops and I've got access holes in the top for stuff that's always there. So things I've got a Nutribullet there, and coffee machine as an example. So think of things that require full-time power and think about how you can conceal that power because if they're always there, you don't need to see that PowerPoint. That also goes for things like uh, studies. So again, I'll use my own home as an example. I'm sort of looking across at my study nook at the moment. The desk sits probably at around the 800, 850 sort of height. Why not put power underneath the desk and then have one of those little cable tidies that comes up through 
the desk, so all of the cables are hidden. Have those power points here at about 600. You're not gonna see cables running up from the floor, which is really, really ugly. And then maybe have some power above the bench. And again, this goes for not just a study, but a kitchen or, or a bathroom as well. Have study above the bench for more transient items, items that come and go. Think of the power points in that respect, if you like. Uh, a little bit of thought there goes a long way as to how the house presents as a whole. It seems really silly and almost um, a little bit pedantic, but it really does make a big difference. In regards to your lighting, really try and make sure that all of the lights on your ceiling are in straight lines. I cannot emphasize this enough. Again, it seems like a really obvious thing to say. More often than not, the way that your lights are gonna be laid out when they come from a drafting department, they're going to be grouped by room, right? So you have maybe three or four over the dining room, three or four over the living room, couple over the kitchen, and they'll all be switched separately because they've got a different room name. But realistically for most of the homes that, that I build and certainly most of the that the project homes in that price bracket I keep speaking of, of between 170, 180 to 300,000, the living areas, the kitchen, living, dining, they're generally gonna be one space. So does it need to be lit all separately? As an example, my own home here, all of the lights in terms of the living, dining, kitchen, uh, and even the entry, they all come on together because there's no reason that I would ever have them lit separately. That's really important for probably more than open living areas. And if you've got the alfresco outside, try and make sure the lights line up from inside to outside because it looks really, really cool. It almost looks like a bit of a, if you've got a long living area anyway, a little bit of a, a runway for lack of a, a better term. That's how I did mine here. And it does make a really, really big difference. Certainly when I was working uh, with the architects and interior designers on all those McMansions, the, what we call the reflected ceiling plan or your electrical sort of plan where you see the lights, a lot of time and thought goes into exactly how things look on the ceiling. And it is something that people overlook a lot. Now, within the confines of the, the types of homes we're talking about, there is probably going to be limitations with that in terms of where you can position air conditioning vents and things like that in relation to where uh, things like the roof joists and things are in the roof, which is cool, but we can still make a pretty concerted effort to get things like the lights uh, in the living areas all lined up. Next thing I would think about is, do we really need dimming? So in my opinion, ambience isn't introduced by just dimming the overall level of light in an area. That just lowers the overall level of light in an area. I'm not sure whether how much you can kind of see of what's going on here, but I've got a lamp for a bar here. I've got another lamp behind the camera. I've got one in the background, which you probably can see. When I'm not shooting little videos and podcasts like this or like cooking dinner or something like that, the down lights aren't even on. All of the ambience and coziness of the home comes from lamps. So I've got uh, a couple of floor lamps, a couple of uh, table lamps, and they cast nice shadows and, and that sort of thing. It's a little bit more dramatic. So please don't just go through your home and just think about putting dimmers on everything and lowering the overall level of light. It's really boring. Uh, for, for lack of a better term. Certainly, if you want a bit of dimming somewhere, go for it, but really have a think about using lamps and things like that as opposed to just lowering the overall uh, light level. The last thing on lighting I wanted to go through was light switches and light switch locations. So really put a lot of thought as to how you will move through the home and use the light switches. And can you consolidate lighting circuits to one switch to minimize the amount of switching on the walls. So um, 
the less switching you have on the walls, the less wall acne, we would call it, you've got, okay? So think about, yeah, like when you come in from the garage as an example, can you switch the hallway lights from inside the garage? Then when is the next point of light switching? When does that ne next point of light switching need to be? Is it, you know, as soon as you get into the living room and when you press one switch there, can it turn on all of the lights in the living, in the living kitchen dining area rather than just the kitchen light as an example? Getting consistent lighting is a really, really critical thing for a home. We spend a lot of time in our homes at nighttime. And certainly I'll cut back to sort of when I was working at Intelligent Home and doing the lighting designs and control of lights at a very high level. They had kind of like computer systems in place that managed the lighting to make sure the homes looked absolutely Hollywood every night and it was consistent. So I'm by no means saying you have to go down that path. But if you put some thought into how you switch the lighting, you can get a very, very similar and consistent result for your home without having to spend absolute mountains of money. All right, so look, that really wraps it up for episode four. We didn't have any special guests this time, unfortunately. You've had to listen to my voice the whole time. And I'm, to be honest, I'm sick of the sound of my own voice as well. But next time we'll be talking to a site manager for ABN Group, Mr. Brendan Evel. Uh, and we're actually gonna go through each little stage of the build, which will be really, really interesting. I guess it'll be great for everyone listening to, I guess, understand what all those little stages are and what they can expect to see along the way. So look, that wraps up episode four. As always, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Build With Dezo. That's Build With D-E-Z-O. That wraps up this one and I will see you for the final episode next time. Building in Perth, everything you wish you knew in five informative episodes. Available on YouTube, Spotify and Apple Podcasts.